Reduction Roadmap How to Achieve Ambitious Emission Reduction Targets Hi, my name is Marcin Wojciech-Żebrowski and welcome to the newest episode of Herbcast, my podcast about architecture, urbanism, cities and many more. Welcome to today's discussion on the Reduction Roadmap, a new Danish research project aimed at reducing carbon emissions in the building industry in the line with the Paris Agreement goals. Since you are listening to this podcast, and I hope that this is maybe not the first episode of Herbcast that you are listening to, I hope that you are aware that the building industry is responsible for a significant portion of the global energy consumption and also the greenhouse gas emissions, making it a critical sector in the fight against climate change. The project we're gonna discuss today, the Reduction Roadmap, provides a comprehensive approach to achieving the necessary emission reductions, and it is developed by a partnership of Danish firms, leading researchers and NGOs. Today we will explore the specific actions proposed by the Reduction Roadmap, its approach and the role of policy and regulation in the implementation of such ideas. Reduction Roadmap is initiated by architecture firm Effect, engineering firm MOE, a part of Artelia Group, and architecture office Zebra. And my guest today is Danny Hill Hansen. Maybe you can introduce yourself, Danny. Danny Hill Hansen, and I'm sitting in the research and design and innovation department at Effect, uh, working with collaborative research and design projects. We will explain what the reduction roadmap is, what are the specific actions and changes that reduction roadmap proposes, how does it differ from other existing initiatives, and what is the role of the policy and regulations, and what can be the first success of such an initiative. Welcome to the newest episode with Danny. I'm so happy, Danny, that you are here. I'm, I'm, I'm really, really interested in the reduction roadmap that we're going to discuss today. But maybe before we just dive in, I just would like to ask you for a short introduction. How did you get interested in not only designing, but something beyond? So talking about reducing the emissions in architecture industry, that is unfortunately an industry that puts a lot of emissions outside. And I hope that we are on the on the right track just to try to reduce them. And this is the topic of this discussion. But before that, please just feel free to introduce yourself and, and a bit of your work. Sure. Yeah. Hi, I'm Danny Hill Hansen. And uh, yeah, I have been with Effect for almost a year now. And to start at Effect, I was primarily working on the Reduction Roadmap project when I first came on board uh, last year in April. But like before that, before that, like a long time ago, when I was studying even in my bachelor in the U.S., American, uh, that was focused on sustainability and interior design. So that was more looking at material health mm. and indoor air quality and what makes buildings healthy from the inside with the focus on 
yeah, sustainability certifications and that kind of thing. And then I got a master's of architecture, the Frank Lloyd Wright School of Architecture, also in the U.S., which was focused on organic architecture, which is looking at like landscape integration, passive design strategies, using regional building materials and kind of drawing inspiration from the place in which you design. Mm. So I've kind of been scaling up when it comes to sustainability. And then uh, a few years ago, I was teaching about sustainability to architecture students, but working in regular architecture projects on the side. And for me, there was too big of a gap between what I was teaching and what I was practicing. And I felt in order for me to actually change the building industry and set it in the direction I knew we needed to go, I had to get some more tools. So I actually went to Alborg University here in Copenhagen and got a second master's degree in sustainable design engineering, which is focused on systems change and transition studies and how to kind of zoom out beyond the building and understand like the much bigger scale of sustainability and climate change issues and how to contextualize like the big issue within a small project. So that's kind of what has brought me to sustainability yeah, over the last, I don't know, 13 years. And if you, of course, from your own experience, think mm -hmm. of those two, so the practice and academia, mm -hmm. which of those two, according to your experience, is more forward-leaning? Mm -hmm. And which one of those two is rather catching up? I think that there is particular actors in both spaces mm -hmm. that are very forward-leaning and that are driving innovation and is often projects where you have academic actors, like researchers and that kind of thing, coming together with those of us who sit in the industry and practice to make innovation projects because the people who only sit in academia also have a very bureaucratic system mm. where they can't be political, where they can't take certain decisions because of the context which they work where in architecture, we can actually do demonstration projects. We can actually try things out. And of course, we need to also have developers and clients that are ambitious and like-minded to see those projects through. But we can actually show a proof of concept. But the reduction roadmap is a very good example of asking a big question, how could we build within planetary boundaries we might have a lot of knowledge on bio-based materials and sustainable construction and circular economy, but we don't know how to allocate planetary boundaries down to a measurable target. Mm. So then we have to actually work with climate scientists and people who are sitting with this focus on climate change or absolute sustainability and take their knowledge and translate it into something useful for our industry. So I think we are there's front runners in both places actually mm. so it's about as i understand bridging the bridging the gap Absolutely. Uh, between those two and this is something i think that you do in the reduction roadmap which is this tool the project the statement which was basically developed in this cross sectoral partnership yes and that's i think a good moment to introduce the reduction roadmap so could you tell me and the listeners what the reduction roadmap actually is yeah so as you said it's a the result of a cross-sectoral collaboration, what the reduction roadmap does is set specific reduction targets for the building industry so that we can actually scale our building impact within planetary boundaries here in Denmark. 
it's a target, it's a framework, it's a call to action, and uh, it's it's a timeline. So we've basically taken knowledge and data that's well documented in a climate change context of the IPCC report and the Paris Agreement and translated that into specific targets we can use in the building industry to reduce emissions of our buildings. Something that I really take care of in this podcast, I hope, is to use this accessible knowledge mm-hmm. and accessible language also to, to introduce those. So can we just say very briefly what is the definition of both the, the planetary boundaries and what exactly is the Paris Agreement that you refer to? I will do my best because the definitions on these things are quite specific. But in general, in a general sense, general language, the planetary boundaries framework is illustration that was created by the Stockholm Resiliency Institute. Normally when we talk about the roadmap, we have like wonderful slides that show these things because it's really a visual language. So I'll do my best. We can add a link later <laughs> yeah, we to can the add episode a link, description. Because exactly. <laughs> I know it might be a challenge to introduce those concepts in yeah. a podcast, but yes. let's do our best. Yes. So the Planetary Boundaries Framework looks at nine Earth systems and it shows how close we are to operating within Earth's limits. So if you imagine a circle in the center, there's the Earth, and that's our safe operating space for humanity. When we're in the safe operating space, our consumption and production and what we take from the Earth is within the limits and the ability for the Earth to regenerate. Right. So across these nine different systems, one of them is biodiversity. We have climate change. We have acidification of the ocean. We have a range where we get beyond a certain tipping point or a threshold. And once we've reached that, it's very hard for Earth to rebalance those systems. So today we have reached the six out of nine planetary tipping points. Mm. So we are in a bit of a crisis, as we maybe know. Uh, And uh, this framework makes like, it, it visualizes these systems and gives sort of a language to kind of understand where we are in terms of where we should be. Mm. So that is kind of the planetary boundary framework. Is that something that uh, Kate Ravensworth is relating to with her donut economics? Is that the same model? Yes. The donut economics has the planetary boundaries on the outside of the donut, Mm. and then the inside of the donut is a social foundation, and that's built on the sustainable development goals, the 15 SDGs, or Mm. 17 sustainable development goals. And those were the result of the Paris Agreement, mm. which was a, you know, one of these big climate, I don't want to say conference, these meetings that happen every few years where world leaders come together and set new climate plans and targets for reducing our impact. And the sustainable development goals have set a trajectory across different categories for saying this is where we want to go. The major criticism of the Paris Agreement and the result, which is these SDGs, is that those are very relative. So they don't have specific targets Mm. included in them. What that means is that you can say, okay, we are following one of these SDGs in our organization, but it's not actually setting a direction. Mm. It's saying this is something we want to work on to get a little bit better, but it's relative. So what the planetary boundaries does is actually give us absolute limits. Mm. through climate change science, where we know exactly how much of a carbon budget we have left to use. And so what we've tried to do is say, okay, Denmark has committed to the Paris Agreement. 
we have national reduction targets. One of the ways those reduction targets is made visible in our industry, in the building industry, is that we now have carbon limits set for our building construction from 2023 forward, where we will step down the allowable amount of carbon in our building projects. What we have done is tried to say, is that target good enough? And can we build within these absolute limits? I think you just touched on the very important point, which is the feasibility and how to measure those actions. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, uh, what happened in uh, in Paris a couple of years ago is that we had this kind of an agreement that yeah. we are not in a very good position yeah. and that need to do some actions towards, uh, of course, uh, making our impact, the harmful impact on the planet, a bit less harmful and ideally yeah to just return to the state in which we were not harassing the, the planet yeah. and, and, and producing so much carbon emissions. Yes. But do you have any, any ideas besides from what you just said on how those actions and changes can be measured and how is your project, uh, the reduction roadmap, taking those into consideration? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what we've tried to do is develop an absolutely sustainable framework for measuring building impact. So what that means is that we can actually, if we say we're going to follow the Paris Agreement and we're going to scale our building operations within planetary boundaries, we need specific targets to do that because we have a global carbon budget. What that means is you can take that global carbon budget and you can scale it down to a country. So we scaled it down to Denmark. Then you can look at how what we did is look at How many buildings are we building each year? Too many. (laughs) Too many is the answer, yes. Way too many. How many square meters of new housing do we have each year? What percentage do we typically do? And then we get a number kind of saying, okay, this is the limit we have for, or where we have been for, for housing. And then we can scale that down to square meter of building. And then we have to use a 50-year reference period, which is what we are using in life cycle assessment. So we did this for the carbon budget for climate change, which is how we measure impact in the building industry, which is kilos of carbon per square meter per year. And the climate change impact of the nine planetary boundaries is the one that is most directly related Mm. to our activities in the building industry. So we started there. In the next phase and chapter of the roadmap, we'll be opening up the discussion so we can also look at other things like biodiversity, which is also heavily impacted by our industry, but it's measured in a different way than we do buildings. Mm. And how does that uh, differ from other existing initiatives? Because as you you just mentioned before, we should all be working towards reduction Mm -hmm. overall and there are of course many different uh, initiatives so what is the special about the reduction roadmap? It's based on a budget Mm. so most of our sustainability initiatives whether they're on a government level like you know the national reduction ambitions to the building industry where we look at uh, different certification schemes like DGNB in Denmark or if we go to other countries maybe we have BREEAM or LEED These are based on relative sustainability, which basically says we'll do a little bit better. So we can say we have option A and B, 
And B is a little bit better, which means we're heading in the right direction. But what those frameworks don't do is tell us how far off we are from an actual budget. So what we did in this project was find out what is the global carbon budget remaining for a 1.5 warming degree scenario, which is sort of the, the target of the Paris Agreement, that we do not exceed this limit. So we took a specific budget and then through the process of allocation, which is basically giving shares to different things, so a share to Denmark and then a share of that to new housing, then a share to the square meter, then we have a specific budget-based target compared to alternatives which are relative. What would need to happen for the building industry overall to not exceed those limits? I think it's such a complicated topic because we have the building industry in Denmark, we have yeah. the building industries in, in all different countries. Yeah. And of course, some of them are probably more progressive, some of them yes. are, le are less progressive. And have you thought about that? So basically how to approach, how to convince and, and how to make this change happen? Mm. Oh, I know it's a big question. <laughs> it's a big question, yeah. I mean, if we start on just like the how, I think we have to get people to understand the why. Like if we continue building as we do today with the same amount of emissions and the same rate of construction, we will use up this global budget in five years. That's not a lot. That's not a lot. That's the global carbon budget for all of time for us to stay within a safe zone or a low risk zone when we look at the planetary boundary for climate change. So it's like the more we go over the budget, the higher risk we're taking with our chances for living on planet Earth in the next decade, in the next 20 years, in the next 30 years, and so on. So it's like we kind of know from a like a one planet perspective that we are using more planets each year. Like maybe you have heard of Earth Overshoot Day, where each year... You know, in Denmark, it's something like in March, we are, okay, we used up our planetary boundaries for this year in March. And that means after that, we are, we are spending future generations resources, more or less. So it's basically earlier and earlier each year. Yes, it's earlier and earlier each year because we have a growth-dependent economy, which means our consumption and production must grow a little bit each year and be in a steady state of growth all the time. And what we know from, you know, the latest IPCC report, we know from other UN reports, is that if we do not degrow our economy, we will not be able to live here. And so uh, that's a big challenge for our industry because we are in the business of making things, right? So when you ask, how can we actually do it? Well, we have to find more clever ways of creating the things we need. And a lot of that comes down to how we actually distribute our resources. Like you could say almost everyone here, if we use Denmark as the example, has the things they need for a good, comfortable life. And we've had that for a long time. And our rate of happiness hasn't really increased, mm. but our rate of consumption has continued to grow. Mm. And our rate of you know wealth consumption has continued to grow at the expense of people in other places. So if we, as an industry in Denmark, or really anywhere in the global north, want to change what we're doing, we have to kind of expand our set, like our mindset on what is sustainable from a ecological point of view, but also social. Like you could have the most sustainable, low carbon building here in Copenhagen, but if the 
consumption of those materials and the construction of that building ruined someone else's chance at a good life in a faraway place, then it is not sustainable. Mm. And so we have to kind of open up the perspective to say, is it sustainable if it's at the expense of someone else mm. in another place? overshoot day that you've mentioned uh, mm. it's pretty sad and depressing that basically the day happens earlier and earlier yeah and now it's at the at the point that basically the spring is not even starting and we already are more or less exceeding the the limit yeah and the other thing that you've just mentioned is is this overconsumption and at the beginning of this year 2023 I've heard that there was some discussion and debate starting already in uh, in Poland mm. uh, which is about the comfort. Mm. And uh, I don't know if you know, there is uh, a very knowledgeable person called Professor Barber from a university in uh, in Australia. And he was talking a lot about the role of comfort, that basically if we would like to meet the goals also that you've mentioned mm. is about decreasing the comfort or maybe mm. rethinking the comfort. Yeah. And I think that this is such a big challenge because like people are, especially if we discuss the people living in the, in Europe or in Northern countries, yeah. in wealthy countries, wealthy economies, we strive for more and more comfort for mm. bigger apartments, better, yeah. better equipped apartments, for newer, better cars and new gadgets and so mm. on and so on. What's your take on comfort. Is that something that you've also maybe thought about while working with the reduction map? Yeah. You know, the you could say the allocation approach we took in Denmark assumes we continue doing what we do today. And that was the most implementable and strategic way we could do it. It also aligned with the way Danish politics and government has kind of looked at allocation. So we could actually compare the roadmap to national policy. With that being said, we really have to change our mindset of comfort. Like, what do we need? What would allocation look like if it was built on sufficiency? Mm. Like, what is enough? What is enough shelter? What are enough things? How much food and water do we need to have a nutrient-rich diet? I mean, it's like, it's always goes far beyond the building when we talk about allocation because we have to think about all the other types of resources we need. In the roadmap, we look specifically at the building, but when we start to look at levels of sufficiency and you know, what do you need to be happy? Do more things make us happy? My feeling is they don't, but you know, we live in a consumer society that has told us and told everyone else that more is better and growth is good and that the more we get, the better off we are. And we don't often stop Most of us are too busy in our jobs having to get that money to really stop and think about, okay, when am I most joyful? Is it the week I go camping with my family and turn my phone off? You know, do we really need all of this complexity and stuff in our life to have a good life and to be well and to be healthy? And I think my feeling is like, no, (laughs) no, we don't. It's simple. But we live in a society that is built on this growth dominant paradigm. So we have to challenge it. And uh, when we bring that back to the building industry, we have to challenge how much do we actually need to build? Do we need to build new? Should we be building new housing that people can afford and sits empty? 
You know, we have to take some serious discussions about what types of buildings we should build in the future. Should we be building bigger and bigger homes? Probably not. Should we, you know, when we do a municipal building or a school, what other functions can that building do? You know, so it's not just about doing less or building less or having less, but it's also about doing more with less, you know, mm. being smarter and being more resource efficient in the way we plan things so that we aren't, yeah, consuming at the rate we do today. Mm. I want to reflect on that here a bit. Uh, we will have a book recommendation corner yeah. at the end of this episode, but I just wanted to mention two titles that are really relevant to, to what you just said. Mm. One of them is about uh, rethinking the, the attitudes and, and approach to, to the food we consume. Uh-huh. This is a book called Citopia by Carolyn Steele, a oh, UK-based yep, architect. Yep. And this is a book I really, really, really love because yep. it, it tells a lot about like how the cities were constructed That's around fantastic. the food and how we should kind of rethink the way we, we we treat the food, which basically became a commodity and something yeah. that we just pay and eat and we don't even think of it anymore. And the second thing is the founder of Kickstarter, the platform that helps mm-hmm. some ideas to grow and collect money and, and develop, basically, he wrote a book called This Is Our Future. I was extremely astonished while reading because he was basically saying the same. So we need to rethink the way how we develop and how consumerism is basically destroying us and this is and we were we've been taught that this is the way to go because like both me and you probably we've been born around the time that basically there was no other thing it was just like development development eating as much consuming as much and taking as much just to develop the everything so these were just two recommendations because i think that those those were the books that really helped me to be maybe more aware and conscious about those things that we've just discussed But let's come back to the reduction roadmap and basically the role of the policy and regulations because Mm. one thing is creating such a device and this is already, I think, a good step because you had this cross-sectoral partnership. So Mm -hmm. it's not only like boiling down within this small uh, still architecture industry, but it's, Mm. it's reaching out. But I think that we will not move on, we will not go further without the political actors and and the regulations. So what those tools, so the policy and regulations, what role do they play in the reductions roadmap approach? I mentioned a little bit about how we kind of, when we thought about how to do the allocation and the roadmap, we thought about two things. What are the emission reduction targets in Denmark from this year moving forward that we'll see a, a decrease in every few years? But also, how do we measure things in Denmark? So we now have a set method building LCA for how we actually calculate building impact. So we had to kind of, you could say, design the roadmap sitting between those two contexts and what we know about our average impact of buildings. So we based our study on a report that came out of BUILD, which is a a research division at Alberg University. They're working in close collaboration with the people who are setting policy for the building industry. And they did a study of 60 building typologies and looked at like the the average level emissions for those buildings, mainly looking at residential. Some of the projects were offices. And what they found out is that the average emissions per square meter per year is around 9.6 kilos of carbon for a residential typology. What we have set as a limit from this year is 12 kilos of carbon per square meter per year. So what this means is that our building regulations are, one, set above the average, and people do not have to do anything 
really. Maybe a few building typologies will struggle, but in general, most of the construction that happens won't really need to change any of their practices for the next two to four years before they actually have to start reducing their emissions. So business as usual for the foreseeable future. And the shame is that like in Denmark, we are usually on the forefront of sustainability things. And we are leading the way about how to do things. And we are one of the, I think, if not the only country that has set a limit for carbon in the building industry. So that's a good thing. But when that limit makes it possible to continue with business as usual, then it's just kind of like national greenwashing and we need to do better. So when we looked at the reduction targets set by the roadmap, which are aligned with the Paris Agreement and Denmark's national commitment to carbon reduction, and those are sitting considerably under the legal level of carbon Mm. emissions in the building industry, we can see that there's been a big misunderstanding between setting reduction targets based on a percentage to do a little bit better than we used to compared to setting targets based on the finite budget that we have. We need our politicians to understand this. We need them to set stricter requirements. And in the future, we need to have a limit to how many buildings are built. We must. If it is open, we will continue to grow unless there are limits set on how much we can build each year. And, you know, we designed the roadmap looking at assuming we have a constant rate of construction, which means we have to go really far down to 0.4 kilos of carbon per square meter per year. That's a 96% reduction from the average. But if we were to cut the amount we build in half, that number would go up to 1.7 approximate kilos of carbon per square meter per year. Today, we have projects that affect and uh, some other cases from 4 to 1 planet where we are around 2.5 kilos of carbon using typical building materials that you can get at, you know, Stack or Bauhaus. So it's like without any material innovation, we can get really low already in most residential construction. So the point being is like we need to have stricter limits and we can't wait for them to be set. We have to act now. This roadmap is hopefully a call to action to a lot of people. But we also need those limits to be set. To stand firmly on the ground, let's talk about the visibility. So basically how to make it visible in a way that Always, I think, with uh, such an initiatives and ideas, there is the question of the financing. Yeah. So basically, what do you think that would be this first step towards financing such an initiative? And who should be maybe on the forefront of those changes? Is it uh, the material producers or is it, as we've mentioned already, those who are making the policy and regulations? Or should it be the architects who are pitching and just showing how important it is? Mm. Should it be a kind of society as a whole, maybe, who got who gets convinced to mm. such a change? I mean, transition literature would tell us that sustainable transition needs to happen from the bottom up and top down simultaneously. So that means it's you and I having this discussion on your podcast and asking people to go and find out what the roadmap is, but it's also fighting and arguing for stricter policy. So it hap- needs to happen in both ways. I think we need to 
in general, change our mindset around risk. It's like we have so many wonderful, beautiful solutions for bio-based, low-carbon materials, but they have a really hard time competing with the business-as-usual regular construction materials. So it's expensive for them to stay on the market and Building owners are a bit concerned about using these novel, in quotes, materials in the construction of their project because of perceived risk when it comes to fire safety and these kinds of things. But it's like, if we just take like the bio-based material as one example, if you look around Copenhagen even, we have examples everywhere of buildings that have stood for 200, 300 years that are a mix of different types of bio-based construction, and they're still there. And they're okay. And people can still use those buildings. So we have to kind of balance the risk, which is a big driver in the building industry, managing risk, thinking about, okay, short term, there might be a risk because we're going to try new materials. And that's maybe a risk for the architects and it's a risk for the owners. But the long-term risk is that we don't have any materials to use and that we are in a state of panic. So it's like we we can either do things in a very controlled and democratic and planned out systemic way of changing across the material value chain. So that's the suppliers, that's the designers, that's the building owners, that's the municipality. It's everybody who's involved. We can work together to be strategic and planned for low carbon construction now or in five to 10 years is going to happen anyways, because we're going to be in a state of panic. So it's like, We have to work together in order to reach the targets put out in the roadmap. For now, with a project like Living Places, we are like seven years ahead of the roadmap reductions using typical building materials, typical construction, very little innovation, just kind of being pragmatic and using life cycle assessment as part of our design process. So we can do it. We can stay within the roadmap, but we really need people to have the will and the desire to do it. We need to speak up about it, I mm. think. So what would be the first big success, the success story in implementing the reduction roadmaps approach? Mm. One big success is that when we came out with it, we were very concerned that people would be uber critical of the targets and very skeptical of it. People have not been that. People have been receptive. And in general, they have said, okay, how do we do it? So there is a willingness and a desire to operate within planetary boundaries. We want it. People want it. We just need the pathway there. In terms of like implementing the roadmap in a strategic way, we have Diki and B have adopted the roadmap in their new planet certification. So it's actually being used as part of this building certification, which is very good news. So mm. that means that there will actually be, you know, climate targets that are more ambitious than the building codes as part of the DKMB certification moving forward. Mm. So that is one big success there because something like I think 40% of new buildings that are built each year are going through DKMB certification. So they have a powerful role in what the industry perceives as sustainable and like the mm. the forward stepping action. 
I think that certifications uh, in general, it's also an, an interesting topic. Sometimes it's also a bit controversial because of, yeah. uh, for example, the limits, right? The low limits, the low standards that mm-hmm. the building has to achieve to get this certification, get this this shiny sticker or shiny, shiny mark. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, this is something that is a deep topic. And I've also been discussing about the certifications with CEO of the Danish Green Building Council. Yeah. And it was released not that long ago so I listened oh okay <laughs> yeah, I perfect. heard that conversation yeah. perfect so if someone would like to get to know a bit more about the yeah. certifications I will just um, recommend this episode mm. and here is also one more question okay. uh, and I'm proud of this question okay because it's a nice wordplay so speaking about all this production roadmap mm. what is the desired effect for effect mm. okay yes We want other people in other places, so in our industry, in other industries in Denmark and in other countries to take ownership of the roadmap and use it. So one desired effect is that people engage with it and take ownership. We have open sourced it and we want other people to to see it as a way of framing their necessary reductions. A second effect, of course, from that is that we get to do more of the exciting projects that actually land us in the roadmap, that we can continue working with collaborators from across different sectors to push building projects so we can get closer and closer to actually being regenerative. I mean, like the ultimate goal is that building projects can be a part of the solution and actually be good for the planet. We're not there yet. The roadmap is to get us to this safe operating space where the earth can at least balance. But like the next target beyond that is that we actually can begin healing the earth. And if architects and effect can play a role in healing the earth, that would be a major success. I think this is also a good moment to ask you for the last thing, which is still about inspiration, mm-hmm. uh, as you've just uh, said as well. What is your desired effect? So a book recommendation. I've recommended two books already, but yeah. you are the guest. So I think that this is now time and space for you to to recommend something interesting to the listeners. I am reading a lot. So I actually have three because I couldn't narrow it down to two, but they're kind of, we've touched on the topic. So one is the Climate Book by Greta Thunberg. She has put together an amazing collection of essays from top researchers around the world in a really beautiful, clear, articulate guide to understanding what's at stake. The second one is Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World by Jason Hickel, which is looking at the solution and how we can actually go from growth-dependent economy and society to one that works within planetary limits. And the third, I'm putting a little plug, we are working on a book called The Donut for Urban Development, where we are creating a manual that sort of translates the donut economic model defined by Kate Rayworth into a tool that we can use in the building industry. And that's a collaborative project with Home Earth, Donut Economic Action Lab, Stockholm Resiliency Institute, SLA, DTU, Build, Sweco. We have a bunch of, uh, I'm, I'm missing some of our collaborators, but it's another example of like a mm. 
pretty big collaboration. And we are going to launch that in June. So that would be like just for people to keep their eye open. It's going to be like a very practical way of kind of dealing with these issues through building projects. Mm. Okay, I mean, that sounds very interesting. I will definitely keep in touch yeah. uh, around June just to talk about it as well because I think that this is such a great concept. But for now, I wanted to say, Danny, thank you so much for joining Herbcast and for sharing this. I was really amazed. I really had like so many uh, different questions in my head and I think that we've managed to answer most of them. But I think that this is such a great topic and big topic, I mean, here that the discussion should be continued. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, I'm ready to discuss anytime. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the newest episode of Herbcast with Tani. And I hope that you also got inspired because I think that even though the, this is a huge crisis that we are discussing here, we managed to be still kind of motivating and uplifting in the discussion that we had here. And if you would like to get something more about the reduction roadmap, you can just visit the website reductionroadmap.dk and also links to, to the uh, things we've mentioned in the discussion, books and other things will be, yes, I will add it into the episode description. If you would like to get to know something more about Herbcast, I have my website. There is also Instagram, LinkedIn and Facebook. So please write to me there. Thank you and talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.